0: Scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 3, we'll be focusing on verses 16 and 17. I'll begin the reading at verse 1. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory." Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we do pray that it would dwell richly in our hearts this day. And so may Your Spirit give us hearts that understand and perceive Your Word. Indeed, may we see and may we hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There aren't any shortcuts in the Christian life. There's no magic formula or secret sauce, no silver bullet or single piece of knowledge that puts you on a spiritual plane, enabling you to coast to glory. I trust that we know this to be true and won't be seduced by false teaching or fads that might make claims to the contrary. All you have to do is consider the teaching of Jesus and the daily cross-bearing that He said is required of anyone who would follow after Him, as well as His own life and ministry, His suffering and His death. And that makes the point come more sharply into focus. But just because there aren't tricks and shortcuts doesn't mean that there aren't habits, that there aren't rhythms, even liturgies to our lives as believers that serve as aids to the Christian life. Certainly, we've been given the means of grace to primarily support and strengthen our faith. But the Lord has also provided accompanying instruments which serve to edify our souls as we seek to faithfully follow him. And if we're paying attention, that's precisely what we find in Paul's continuing exhortation to the Colossians about the life from above that they are to pursue and put on. Last week, we considered the five virtues in which Paul commands them to be clothed in verse 12. And then the bearing with one another and forgiveness that are so fundamental to community life. Paul mentions love as the ligament that binds everything together in the body, and understandably so. And and then commands that the peace of Christ umpire our hearts, that it direct the very motives and outlook of our living as the body of Christ. And then call, and then Paul commands gratitude, thankfulness, which we've noted at various points as being an important theme of Paul's letter to the Colossians and a necessary factor for maturity to take place. A case could be made that love, peace, and thanksgiving are practically presented as a triumvirate, which are to govern the Christian life, particularly the life of the church. Still more, as we've observed throughout our study of this marvelous letter, the Apostle's writing is is quite dense. There's, There's so much to unpack and so many strands to follow in this tapestry of text that's presented to us. Well, such is the case again in verses 16 and 17 with the Apostle saying so much more than we might realize at first glance as he continues to impress upon the Colossian church and us what constitutes the life of heaven upon earth, the life from above, the life to which we've been redeemed and reconciled to live. In verse 16, Paul gives yet another imperative to the Colossians. The word of the Christ, let it dwell in you abundantly. Paul commands that the word of Christ be housed in them. This idea of indwelling isn't necessarily new, even as Paul uses temple imagery in 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Similarly, in Romans 8, Paul refers to the spirit dwelling in believers. So this imagery and metaphor of residence within God's people isn't necessarily new. What is different here though is that Paul says the word of the Christ. We read word of Christ and just gloss over it because because in in you know to us the word of God, the word of Christ, the Bible often just runs together in our thinking. And understandably so to a point. But Paul is quite intentional in saying the word of the Christ, the word of the anointed one, the word of the Messiah. Likely the best way to understand this is to grab an internal clue from chapter 1 and verse 5 where Paul mentions, Through the hope, the one having been laid away for you in the heavens, which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. What is the word of Christ? It's the gospel. Jesus' teaching, the announcement of his victory over sin and death and his reconciliation of all things in heaven and earth to himself. That's the first level of meaning. Of course... It would also include all the Old Testament as well, even as Jesus teaches the disciples in Luke 24. But, but what Christ accomplished should come first in our thinking. The gospel is to dwell richly, abundantly in their lives. To have an abundance is to have an ample supply, to have a great plenty, to even have an overflow. And being rich toward his people is God's way. Even as Paul writes to Timothy... As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then to Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Surely having abundance of the Spirit should entail an abundance of the Word of Christ in the lives of believers. But Paul continues in the next part of the verse, "...in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another." And wisdom is not a new theme for Paul in Colossians. Back in chapter 1 and verse 9, he mentions, "...and on account of this, from the day which we heard, have not stopped on your behalf praying and asking, so that you might be filled up to the knowledge of the will of Him in all spiritual wisdom and understanding." Then again in one twenty eight, "...whom we proclaim, instructing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, so that we may present every man mature in Christ." And then in 2.23, Paul talks about the regulations of Judaism that have an appearance of wisdom. But based on what Paul has already said, certainly Christ is central to wisdom, even as He is the fulfillment, the glorification of wisdom. And the Colossians are to take this all wisdom and they're to teach one another in it. They're to admonish, to exhort one another in it. The idea of teaching is fairly straightforward. It has to do with instruction, instilling doctrine, to explain or expound. The word for admonishing or exhorting also has an element of imparting instruction or understanding, but further conveys the idea of to set right or to lay on the heart the stress is on influencing not merely the intellect, but the will and disposition. And here is, is one of the many one-anothers that we find in Paul's writing and how the body of believers are to conduct themselves. And certainly there's an aspect that teaching and exhorting can take place through conversations, but this, this also applies to a degree to the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. You're instructed and exhorted through Sunday school classes and sermons. But if we keep reading what Paul says, there may be another secondary application of how teaching and admonishing takes place in the life of the church. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs in grace, singing in your hearts to God. Now, this part of the verse presents a few challenges to us. In the first place, there's a good bit of debate as to what Paul means with these three terms that he employs employs here. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Some hold to the position that all three of these terms are referring to different kinds of psalms that are found in the book of Psalms. The case is made from the fact that all three terms are used in relation to various psalms in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew. And it's certainly possible that this is what Paul means in these terms. And some have even used this text and line of thought to uh, to further promote exclusive psalmody in the church. That we should only be singing the psalms or other songs explicitly given in Scripture. While there may be some draw to this line of argumentation, the weight of it gives uh, the weight it gives to the Septuagint is too strong, whereas the priority should be given to the Hebrew, the Hebrew text. A second challenge is distinguishing these three terms: psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Again, scholars vary as to how to separate them. John Calvin cate- categorized them as follows: Psalm equals singing with a musical instrument. Hymn equals a song of praise, and a song he more literally translated as ode, contending that it contained praise, exhortation, and other matters. His take may very well be be correct, but the general consensus, consensus seems to be that we can't know with particular precision what Paul means by these terms. But the fact that the church is to be singing is clearly evident. And here we do well to step back for a moment and consider some of the grammar, particularly the verbs that Paul uses in verse 16. Now recall that he begins with the command, the word of Christ, let it dwell in you abundantly. Then the next three verbs that he uses are all present active participles, which denotes ongoing continuous action and are an application of the word of God, of the word of Christ dwelling richly, teaching, admonishing, and singing. But what Paul seems to be hinting at is that there's a sense in which our singing of psalms and hymns is a manner in which we teach and exhort one another. How so? Well, in the fact that we're corporately declaring the same things when we sing and our voices collectively encourage one another in the truth that we're declaring. You know, there's strength in numbers, so to speak. And so your singing joined with everyone else's singing helps to further affirm the truth that's being declared. To put it, to put it slightly indelicately, we can think of corporate worship of what we're doing here as a righteous mob mentality. And while we might not be able to explain everything about it, certainly the Holy Spirit works through our singing together, our singing of spiritual songs for our further edification and growth in the faith, even the gospel of Christ. And to state the obvious, this is why you need to be singing, not taking songs off because it's not your favorite, it's not as familiar. Now, just sing to the best of your ability and understand that in doing so, you're participating in the further enrichment of the Word of Christ in your hearts and the hearts of your brothers and sisters that are gathered around you. Something else to consider, which I can't help but wonder if it was lingering in the back of Paul's mind, is to consider the pairing of the themes of wisdom and praise that we find here in this verse. When we go to the center of our Bible, what do we find there? The book of Psalms and the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. And generally speaking, how do you get to Proverbs? Well, through the Psalms. Or consider from this angle. When you think of the book of Psalms, what Old Testament personage do you readily associate with the Psalms? David. Conversely, when you think of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, whom do you immediately associate with the wisdom books? Solomon. Solomon. Of course, David was Solomon's father. But consider how the psalms that he composed, which Solomon would have been exposed to, likely even sung by Solomon, would have been used by the Holy Spirit in Solomon's spiritual formation. You know, I know we probably think that Solomon was just kind of zapped and then had all of this wisdom. And there's clearly a sense in which the Lord specifically answers his prayer for wisdom. But that gift wasn't given in a vacuum. You know, it's no accident that the wisest man who ever lived came after the poet king. Songs are formational. Songs help us to remember. And singing is one of the best ways for us to commit something to memory. And this is the way in which, this is the way it was in the ancient world, Well, because people didn't have their own copies of the Bibles. Um, There weren't Bibles. Uh, Plenty of people didn't read. So what do you do? Someone who can read teaches it to others through chanting you're singing. You now, for those of you connected with education, particularly classical education, what's well, a chief way in which you ingrain into students fundamental things they need to know, especially in the pre-poly or poly stages, the, the grammar stage, which is basically the starting point. You sing songs. You sing chants. Every year uh, during the award ceremony at TCA, the kindergarten class gets up in front of everyone. And chants to all the presidents of the United States. How are they able to do that? Well, they've sung it again and again and again, and it's in some type of chant or song form. You know, just, just think of the fact that some of you can probably sing a popular song from the radio from 20, 30, 50 or more years ago, and you know every single word to that song. But you might walk into a room and forget why you went in there. Again, music is formational. And having the Bible memorized and familiarized through singing is absolutely fundamental to the life of the church. Singing aids memorization. And if we are to be a people in whom the word of Christ dwells richly so that we might encourage one another in the faith, then not only do we need to give ourselves to Bible study, but also to singing. Because what you know by heart, you can repeat to yourself and to others. And this will come as no great surprise to anyone who's been a part of this congregation for any length of time, but the singing and chanting of the psalms themselves is key to our spiritual formation. You know, if we stop and think about it, the the psalms are the Bible, the story of redemption in abbreviated form. They also encapsulate every aspect of the life of faith. Just as a thought experiment. If you were stranded on a desert island and could only have one book of the Bible with you, or if you were in prison and could only have one book of the Bible to read, what book would you choose? One of the Gospels? You can make a great case for Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Genesis. Again, another great case would be made for the for Genesis. But I think if I had to pick just one, it would be the Psalms. And notice something else about the trajectory of Paul's thought and how peace, love, and gratitude lead to the scriptures and singing. And you don't merely have the Bible. Paul isn't advocating that it's all Bible study or instruction, but that accompanying the Word, even necessary to the Word, is worship. See, worship is at the center of Christian living. Even the corporate worship of God's people, where God's Word and the praises of God are chiefly manifest. Paul is speaking to the church in Colossae. He's speaking to them corporately. And there's necessarily a corporate application to his teaching. It's a little bit tough to know exactly how to take Paul's qualifying statement in grace. And the word is grace and not as, as the New King James read and not thankfulness as the ESV reads. Paul's literal word order is in grace singing in the hearts of you to God. So on either side of singing are these prepositional phrases. And singing in the heart sounds a little bit strange since we sing with our voices. So what's Paul getting at here? Well, let's not forget that Paul mentioned, just mentioned the heart back in verse 15 where the peace of Christ is to direct our lives. And so it seems that Paul is saying that the grace, the favor that you've been shown in Christ, the peace that he's accomplished for you, should elicit your praise. The singing that comes from your lips originates in your inmost being, where the peace of Christ reigns, where the Word and Spirit dwell, and it's from there that also come songs of praise. Of course, this significantly overlaps with the themes of gratitude and thanksgiving that we've already noted. But notice what Paul says next in verse 17. And all which whatsoever you do in word or in work, all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice the progression in Paul's thinking. Worship leads to word and work. Worship leads to doing. It leads to living life. And consider the two factors that Paul says are to govern the Christian life, the whatever you do. First, It's to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that indicate? That you identify with Him, but it also determines what can and cannot be done. Jesus' Lordship governs how you conduct your life, and obedience to Him is paramount. The whatever is defined by His Word, what is deemed as righteous and just. And as a representative of the Lord, as one bearing His name, then if you're ever faced with the question of whether or not you should or shouldn't do something, then ask yourself if it can be done in the Lord's name. Can you commit adultery in the Lord's name? No. Can you lie, cheat, and steal in the Lord's name? No. Can you work at the post office or in a major corporation or at the liquor store in the Lord's name? Yes. These may be obvious examples, but hopefully they, they make the point of the Christ-centered perspective and outlook that we are to have as believers. Then what's the second characteristic? Well, you already know, giving thanks. And more specifically, thanksgiving is directed to God the Father through Jesus, which is fitting for Paul's theology and what he's taught throughout the letter. And how did Paul begin in chapter 1 and verse 3? We give thanks to God the Father to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's own life and ministry models what he's setting before the Colossians. And arguably, once again, he's applying the theology of his hymn back in chapter 1 and verses 15 to 20, where the apostle begins by declaring that Jesus is the image of God, the unseen one, firstborn of all creation. Now, interesting, isn't it? Paul's instructing the giving of thanks, of praying to the unseen Father through the image-bearing Son. Jesus, who was seen, and who, if you've seen, you've seen the Father, He's the one through whom your thanks go to the Father in heaven. And fittingly so, given all that Christ has done, all that He accomplished, to reconcile the all in Him, making peace to the blood of His cross, whether that upon earth, whether that in the heavens. And as we live our lives in light of the reconciliation and peace that has come, as we demonstrate the life from above to which Paul directs the Colossians in us, then how can we how can we not but be filled with gratitude? How can we not be regular regularly grateful for all that is ours in Christ and for this very life for which we've been saved to live? There's no place for ingratitude. There's no place for grumbling. And yet again, we're, we're challenged to consider if our lives are those that are filled and overflowing with thanksgiving. As we pursue the words and work that are done in the name of the Lord Jesus, what other disposition of life should we have? And, and this is certainly a principle you already know, but, but here in worship, thanksgiving is central to the service. Not only in the prayers and and uh, prayers and praises, but but as it culminates At the Lord's Supper. You know, what's an older way of referring to this event? The Eucharist. The Thanksgiving. In Luke's account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, we read, And taking bread, having given thanks, he broke and gave to them. Perhaps you've thought of it before, but it's a remarkable thing for Jesus to be giving thanks knowing the suffering and death that awaited him, even as the symbols of bread and wine would gain their meaning through his sacrificial death upon the cross. And certainly we're to follow his example and pattern of gratitude to the Father in our own lives, even when shadows, difficulties, and trials are upon us. And for our lives to to take that shape, to grow and mature, what do we need to do? We need to worship where we are trained in this very life of thanksgiving unto God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. The liturgy here should flow out into the liturgy of our lives, directing our speech and actions. The singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs should instruct conversations and the work to which we give ourselves over the course of the rest of the week. And the psalms themselves, which engender wisdom, should be central to our praising and praying lives. And so we sing and chant them week after week, further inculcating in our hearts and minds that the Spirit using them to view the world correctly, a world ruled by the Lord's anointed, the great King over all the earth. A world in life in which we will encounter trials, difficulties, suffering, and enemies, experiencing life, death, mourning, and joy. And here in God's psalm book, we're taught how to respond, how to pray, how to live in wisdom. As one pastor exhorts, repetition is the mother of learning. We learn what we repeat. We learn our habits, our patterns, our routines, our rituals. Our habits and routines become us. We become what we practice. Practice makes perfect. We repeat dinner rituals. We repeat bedtime and morning habits. We create schedules in order to use our time and energy efficiently. This is just to point out the inherent liturgical nature of life. Our lives are full of liturgy, habits and patterns of speech, action, gesture, song, meals. And they are forming us. We love the Psalms in particular. They are God's inspired songbook and prayer book. They are the Spirit's favorite songs and prayers. So they are our favorite songs and prayers. But we don't just want to give them a favorable nod. We want to learn them all. We want them to become our script for life. And so we are endeavoring to learn the Psalms. We want to have the Psalms memorized. We want the Psalms to spill out of us. We believe the Psalms teach us the words and emotions and responses for every situation in life. The Psalms teach us to cry, teach us to mourn, teach us to laugh, teach us to rebuke, teach us to love, teach us to sing. The psalms are our script for life, and so central to our worship are the psalms. The repetition of prayers and psalms in liturgical orders are boot camp for life. Regular, repeated prayers and hymns and readings are the workout of Christian discipleship. No one mocks the marathon runner for running every day. No one chides the soldier for doing push-ups every morning. We know what they are training for. The repetition is the training. It isn't the marathon itself, and it isn't the war itself. But apart from that training, they will not be ready for the competition. They will not be ready for the fight. So they train in a regimented order. They have a liturgy of work, of working out and training and exercising so that they will be ready. Corporate worship is training. And here we're even taught how to train the other days of the week. As well as put the training to use. It's central to our life as a church, to our lives as believers, even as Paul conveys here to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you abundantly. And so study and sing. Be saturated in Scripture through reading and song. And every single Lord's Day, readily and gladly take your place in that righteous mob, even the battle horde of heaven, into which you were initiated at your baptism. And raise your voice in praise and thanksgiving to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and we do pray that it might indeed richly flow out of our hearts and into our lives in our speech and our work. Father, may we love the Psalms all the more and come to know them more fully that we might have all the more the mind of Christ our Savior and Lord